You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Great. I like what Mead prayed. It is great to just be in the presence of the Lord, right? How many of you guys know we're part of a kingdom? Yeah. What was that like? I don't know, 2,000 years ago to cross paths with that king. What was that like after the resurrection when for 40 days that's what he talked a whole lot about, his kingdom? What was it like for the people that embraced that? Well, that's what we're studying through the book of Acts. The alteration of lives. The gathering together of people out of that world that... Mead was praying and just saying, it's just a different experience out there. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. When you walk into a room like this where people are worshiping the king, it's different. Amen? Amen. I, I, I love the peace that comes over this place and we're worshiping the Lord. So let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Acts and we will continue in chapter 2 and we'll look at what happens to these people when... These who encountered King Jesus, these 12 and 120 that would make up the whole group that would actually experience what Jesus had told the 12 on a couple of occasions. John 14, he would be talking about leaving them. He would say, I'm not going to leave you as orphanos, as orphans, but I'm going to leave you the, the, his spirit, the, the paracletos, the one that would come alongside. We, in our introductions to the book of Acts, we said we would talk a whole lot about the Godhead, that we would talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. If you really go through the book of Acts, it's not so much the the acts of the apostles, it's the act of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. And so Jesus said, look, I'm not going to leave you alone, guys. I'm leaving, but I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave the Paracletos that we talked about. We, we worship this God and we are saved by this God and we are sustained by this God. And this God that's coming back for us is a triune God, a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there would be this anticipation in the hearts of the disciples. That anticipation would grow undoubtedly after Jesus showed himself to them after he was raised from the dead. Don't you believe that would be something worthy of greater anticipation. Like everything he said now, I want to like think through a little bit more. So here they are. They're hanging out with him for 40 days. Luke tells us he was just showing himself by many infallible proofs. They had the right message. They were following the right one, King Jesus. But man, they needed something to just fill the wind of their cells that would push them through radical persecution and opposition to advance the gospel message. So he showed up. He evidenced who he was, validating every claim that he had made. And then he would say, as I have told you in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, you guys, there's this promise of the Father. Just as John baptized people with water, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And he even prefaced it, like I've been telling you. And so there was this growing anticipation, okay, what's next? I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave you the third person of the Godhead. And he's going to continue to do the work through you. If you and I were there 2,000 years ago, we would have went, well, now what is next? Well, he said, don't leave Jerusalem. There's a command. Terry, and, and, and this is going to happen. So we know 120 of them would hang out in Jerusalem. Jesus would ascend. Ten days later would be the day of Pentecost, which we noted would be this amazing you know, influx of people. A, a, a multicultured group would just swell up the city of Jerusalem. There to commemorate the Feast of Pentecost. And as all of these people from different 
regions, Jews, those that have been converted to Judaism, all just zealous to keep the feasts, to celebrate these amazing events. There, the 120 were for 10 days going up into an upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit fell. The Holy Spirit fell. And that, of course, was a supernatural phenomenon. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. If you looked around the room, each person had this thing on their head, like a, a, a cloven fire. And, and they all, each one of them, would have began to speak in different dialects that were known to that day. These were Galileans who would have spoke Aramaic and, and a bit of Greek. But at the most part, Luke says there were 15 different dialects that were being spoken in that room, at least that the crowd that began to gather around that setting from different areas, he mentioned 15 different areas that spoke 15 different distinct, unique dialects that day, were tripping out because they recognized these are Galileans who should be speaking Aramaic, but they're speaking, well, my, they're speaking my language, whatever that might have been. All around the Mediterranean, as far as Rome, as far as Egypt, Crete, and they, they were tripping out because they were all saying the same thing. They were all worshiping God and they were magnifying God and just praising the wonderful works of God. That, that brings us to the response of the crowd. They were, they were tripping out on that. They were amazed. They marveled. Some of them asked the question, what is this? What does this mean? Others were like, they're just full of wine. They're drunk. And that sets the stage for Peter. Peter will give the first sermon. We're going to get through it this morning, trust me. We've, we've talked about getting to it for about five weeks, but we're going to get there today. But Peter is this guy who, who he, he liked to be the first in everything. He just, whenever Jesus was talking, he was the first to like open his mouth and rebut him or question him or second guess him. That was Peter. Peter was the first when, when, when after the resurrection, Jesus, of course, had already met Peter on that first day. But then later on in the week, they had all went up north. The, 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 the 11 disciples, Judas was no longer alive. And when Jesus was on the seashore in John's gospel, Peter was the first one out of the boat. Peter. On the day that Jesus would be arrested, as the mob came after him, Jesus, Peter was the first one forward, the first one to draw his sword. Earlier on in the ministry of Jesus, when the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee and there was a storm, they were freaking out. Jesus came walking up to them on the water, which I think would have freaked me out even more. Peter was the first one out of the boat. Peter was the first one to speak up when Jesus had told the disciples on the night that he was being tried, the next day he'd be tried. All of you guys are going to like have a really hard time with me. They're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep. You're going to scatter. Peter was the first one to speak up and say, all will deny you, but I'll never deny you. Peter would be the first one to deny him out of the 12. And so ironically, 50 days after he denied Jesus. We now move into, as the Spirit has fallen on these people, we move into what we call the church age and the era of grace. Fifty days after he sat at that campfire and denied him vehemently with words we wouldn't use, strong language, now he's seen the risen Savior. He's broken bread with Jesus. He's had a sidebar with Jesus at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus asked him about his love for him. And now he is in 50 days, just 50 days, by measure of God's grace, and now under the influence of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has come upon them now. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. 
50 days after being that denier, he will stand up boldly and proclaim Jesus to the very group of people who 50 days earlier radically, brutally crucified his rabbi that he walked with and was identified with so much so that he was afraid 50 days earlier to even say so. We sometimes look at Pentecost and we we look at the crowd that's tripping out and we looked at their question last week of what does this mean? And we answered that, what it means biblically and what it means practically as far as God pouring out his spirit. We looked at those that would be accusing them of being drunk. We looked at all of that. But also, this is the same people group. This is the same religious group that 50 days earlier was successful in going to Rome and saying, kill this guy by way of crucifixion, please. And they did. Oftentimes, we, we wonder about sharing our faith. Oftentimes, we, our hearts race when we see the Lord opening that door, and we're like, oh, I don't want to be rejected by this person asking me questions, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Rest assured, Peter was very human. For three and a half years traveling with Jesus, as we go through the Gospels, all you see is the humanity and the carnality of this guy. The, the, the guy really didn't do a whole lot right, except follow Jesus, but he fumbled along the way. But here he is. And as we look at the redemptive plan of God that was formed before the foundations of the earth, Peter, that denied the very Son of God, through the grace of God and the love of God, would get the nod of God to be the one that would first stand up in the ecclesia, in the church, and proclaim his Son. Who he really is. To these very people that were responsible for going to Rome and having him crucified, he will point his finger at them and say, you guys did this. And he's going to case and point through his sermon who he really is, who they really missed out on. And he'll, 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 he'll bring up the scriptures to them because these are devout Jews that know the word. And he's going to connect the dots and help them understand how they were wrong about Jesus. But this takes a level of confidence and, and just something within him that he previously not, did not have. And it was the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, where all of these amazed and perplexed and marveling people he will begin to proclaim. It starts off in verse 14 by Peter standing up with the eleven. He raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and that's the surrounding area around Jerusalem, and all of you who <clears throat> dwell in Jerusalem. See, you guys that are from Jerusalem, you guys that are outside of Jerusalem. All of you devout guys that are here listening to us, and you're tripping out on what you're hearing as we Galileans are speaking in tongues. Let it be known to you and heed my words. For these are not, they're not drunk, as they were saying, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter, at this time when he stands up, he looks at them in the eyes. And the first thing that he goes to is not, listen, this is what I feel. How many people do we have us prefacing what they want us to, to follow, what they want us to believe by that statement? This is what I feel. That's about all we hear these days. Everything that people want us to believe, for the most part, is based on the premise of what they feel. Peter doesn't go there. Now, 
In my message, in developing Peter's message, <laughs> yes, that's what we're doing, I want us to extrapolate a few things for when it's time to deliver our message. You might not be behind a pulpit. You might be tomorrow at work. It might be with a neighbor. Peter is having his divine appointment with these people. God orchestrated all of this. You and I have our divine appointed opportunities as well. What can we, what can we draw from this? The first thing that he does is he is aware of his audience and he takes his audience to truth. He takes them to truth that he can validate, that he can back up. He takes them to the truth of God's word. Now, for me, I am so blessed to have an iPad in front of me with with cross-reference scriptures, and I have a Bible in front of me that's all highlighted and marked up, and if for you guys that are out there, we'll even put scriptures on here. And, and so our memories aren't as challenged maybe as those fishermen back in those days. But what Peter is going to say, for the most part, it makes me envy his memory. It's the recall of God's word. You see, it wasn't so much that we look at this and say, wow, he just had really great ability to hold on and memorize truth or memorize God's word. There were a lot of Pharisees that did that. Most Pharisees would have memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were good at scriptural memorization. But at the end of this message, 3,000 people are going to be converted. So what we want to do is be in awe of the end result and say, what did he do that could possibly have brought that end result? Amen? Okay. So what he did is he gave them what, what changes lives. What he did is he, he gave them what cuts to the very, beyond the bone and the marrow, to the very core, the soul of who we are. As the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God will do. And so he, he takes these guys that have maybe known the scripture, memorized the scripture, and they're steeped in Judaism. So it's a religious experience to them. And Peter now, through, through radical transformation, he's encountered Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit now, just like Jesus said would be the case. And it's the life. It's as if Jesus is speaking right through him. You see, the Gospels give us what Jesus did in his physical body. Here's the ministry. Here's what he said. Powerful, life-transforming ministry. The book of Acts gives us what Jesus continues to do through his spiritual body, the church. And so here's the first guy that gets up. And in John chapter 14, Jesus had told Peter, don't even worry what you're going to say. My spirit will help bring things to your remembrance. It's the life of God in him, working through him and coming upon him, that through the series of verses and case in point and clear explanation of the scripture, applying it to that audience, it's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of God, the life of God that is going to convict these people and bring them to a place of conversion. Understand, whenever we share the word of God, God is at work. Whenever there is conversion, God is at work. We do our part in, in, in taking in the truth, being filled with the Spirit, the life of God. And then we share the life of God. And as we're doing, on, doing that, God is working on the hearts of the people that are hearing what we have to say. He's working on convicting them. If you asked any of these 3,000 people the day before what they felt about Jesus Christ, they would have told you the rumor that had been spread around town. Remember the rumor? Remember the, 
Remember the, the guards, the Roman guards that went to Pilate and, and were like, hey, you know, they, they, were, they were basically saying the tomb was empty, right? And, and, and the whole consensus was, you guys, here's some money, here's some money. You guys run around and tell everyone that his disciples came and stole the body. So if you ask any of these 3,000 people that are about to be converted the day before, tell me about Jesus. Go, oh, that's that one rabbi dude that was like completely crucified because he was a radical. And he said he was going to tear down the temple and he claimed to be a king and he wouldn't pay you know, taxes and told everyone not to pay taxes. And then, yeah, they, they, they crucified him. And a few days later, his disciples came and stole the body because he ran around telling everyone he would be raised from the dead. But indeed, he never raised from the dead, if you talked to them the day before. That's his audience. Everyone we talk to today that has not surrendered their life to Jesus has a twisted, perverted view of Jesus. I guarantee you. Something that the enemy has laced in their heart and mind they're holding on to. Peter filled with the Spirit, filled with God, filled with the truth of God's Word. It's more than just like, hey, he had a really good handle on God's Word. I would say it this way. God's Word had a really good handle on him. God's Word had taken a hold of him. And so he case and points it. Listen, what you're seeing, he points them right back to the Word of God. What happens when people ask us about our church? I know there's lots of practical things and tangible things we like to talk about. Oh, you got to come. we got a really cool building. New children's wing. All that kind of stuff. But really, what they're, if, they're, if they're curious, they're probably tripping out on your life, that you're not doing what they do, not talking like they talk. And so it gives us that opportunity, and Peter sees that opportunity. They were tripping out on something new and unique that God was doing in their life, and he sees the moment and took them right to the word of God. This was just spoken by the prophet Joel. Someone asks you about your church. You go, oh, yeah, this is just what was spoken by Jesus. In Matthew 16, he was up in this really idolatrous place, in, you know, Caesarea Philippi. And, and, and he just kind of asked everybody, you know, who do you guys think I am? And it was in that, that context that Jesus would say he would build his church. And, just walk them through who the church is and who we are. That's, that's the right answer when they ask about Calvary La Habre, man. Amen. That's a good biblical reference. Referring to the prophet Joel, verse 17, and he quotes a prophecy. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I'm starting to dream dreams now, not see visions anymore. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. When? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in those days. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see where he's going with this? He's pointing these skeptics to a prophecy given by the prophet Joel. Peter says, look it, this is, this is scriptural. We noted last week that when Peter began to talk, he wasn't speaking in tongues. He would have spoken his native language, Aramaic. They would have understood. It was more of the common language of that area. The message we noted was given by a Jew to Jews on a Jewish holy day or holiday. As we read on, he is going to talk about the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah who was born a Jew, lived as a Jew, died as a Jew, and was raised from the dead. That Jew. And we noted that he's going to give three explanations to the sermon. He's explaining what happened. He's going to explain how it happened. He's going to explain why it happened. And this message is not that difficult. <laughs> if, if you went to Peter 
after 3,000 people have been saved, and you're like, whoa, at the end of this message, look at this. And say so you came to him the next day and you go, Peter, what in the world did you say to those people that 3,000 of them are now like followers of Christ like you? What is it that you said? You know what he'd say? Yeah, it, 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 it wasn't that complicated. It was kind of simple. I, 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 you know, I answered their question. I just answered their question. I simply told them about Jesus. And I simply invited them to give their life to him. And it was effective. It was effective because it was scriptural. He's going to say that which is spoken by Joel, and then he's going to reference to David. And and in both of those cases, he's going to quote in the psalm where David spoke and, and to the prophet Joel when he spoke about this particular event. It was simple, it was scriptural, it was also Christ-centered. He's going to mention Jesus in verse 22, 23, 32, 36, and he's going to kind of wind it down with, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it was convicting. And it was convicting because it it was not only filled with the word, but Peter, again, was filled with the Spirit. Verse 37, it says, when when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? And it was effective because it was practical. Remember, they asked the question, what does this mean? He answers it. Towards the end of the sermon, what shall we do? And he answers that question. Very practical. So what had happened? The spirit had come down. The, the, the joyful worship that you're hearing in your native languages as we're just praising and worshiping and recognizing the wonderful works of God, it's not the result of these people being drunk. He, by, by saying, look it, it's not that. And he points them to scripture, it's God. That would have convicted all of those people that were saying, hey, all of this is just a bunch of people that are lit up on wine. Peter's not saying that what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, chapter 28 to 32, because some of that prophecy had yet to come. It was part of it, but not the ultimate fulfillment of it. The signs and the wonders predicted in that passage had yet occurred. When you read Joel's prophecy in context, you see that it deals with the, the nation of Israel, like right now, what they are experiencing. And it, it talks about moving them into the day of the Lord, which is like in towards the end times. So there's a beginning aspect of this prophecy and like the end times aspect of this prophecy. When it comes to this phrase, the day of the Lord, there, there are three or four different important days that the Bible talks about. The day of man, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of God. We're we're presently living in what the Bible would call the day of man. This is a a period of time, again, where man has dominion over the earth. God, of course, is ultimately in control. But in this season, God has given authority over the earth to man, where we have royally messed everything up. And it's only going to get worse. But there is coming the day of Christ. And that's speaking of the the, the rapture of the church, the day where the groom is going to come back for his bride. In Philippians 1.16, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But Then we have the day of the Lord, which Peter is mentioning here, And it refers again to a period of time that begins with the church age. The the time from the birthing of the church we're seeing here, all the way through the the rapture of the church, which is the day of Christ, and even forward, it's a reference to the tribulation period, second coming, and all the way to the millennial reign of Christ, even all the way down to the, the new creation, to the very end is the idea. 
Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need to write to you, for you yourselves know that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He would say in verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. You're not spiritually blind like those who are spiritually dead or spiritually just closed to these truths. And then he would say in verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what they were witnessing, the Spirit being poured out, the church being birthed on Pentecost, was not so much the fulfillment of Joel 2, it was the beginning of that prophecy. The people of Peter's day really didn't know. If you went to a Jew and said, hey, help me understand the timeline of this prophecy, they really didn't, you know, understand the timeline completely to this prophecy. They knew that there were the two comings of the Messiah. They would have talked to you about that, but they didn't know how long of a lapse there would be between the first and the second coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 They knew that he would come, for the most part, as a suffering servant. He would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He'd be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities there. They also would have known that he came in glory one day to set up his kingdom. So he comes to suffer, but then he comes in glory to set up his kingdom. That whole prophecy we like to read around Christmas time in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The the part of Joel's prophecy that talks about the events happening in the latter days, the days in which God would bring to completion his plan for mankind... He says, listen, some things are going to mark that. Verse 17, sons and daughters will be prophesying. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. Maidservants and men servants will prophesy. The Spirit's going to be poured out on men and women. Young women, older women. And the other part, <laughs> young men, older men as well. And then he's also, you're, you're, you, as we get to those end Days, latter days, you're going to see there's going to be signs and wonders in heaven and on earth before the notable day of the Lord. The day in which we are, we are taken up. And then we talk about God's judgment upon the earth, Revelation 6 through 19, and that's the whole tribulation period. But then there is that second coming. He is going to come and set up his kingdom, and rule and reign for a thousand years. That's Revelation chapter 20. It is interesting that Jesus himself references this same prophecy in Joel when he's with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, giving the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. He's quoting from Joel as he's declaring his second coming is going to be taking place right after the tribulation period. It's the words of Jesus. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This passage also indicates that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, should be operating on through the tribulation period to the second coming of Christ. That's kind of an interesting thing. The prophecy of Joel takes us to that great and notable day when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so for people that would say, yeah, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, they ended with the death of the last apostle. What do you do with that? 
No, Joel says, no, in the end days, the Spirit is going to pour out, and these spiritual manifestations, these gifts, will be in full operation. Jesus referred to that as well in the end times. In order for us to experience the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit today, we need to be filled with the Spirit and coveting the better gifts of the Spirit, as Paul exhorts us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's why last Sunday we just kind of went through this and we stopped a little early and we said, just let's wait on the Lord and ask the Lord to fill us with His Spirit. As they heard Peter's description of the day of the Lord, there's no doubt they would have tripped out and a bit, been a bit terrified. Anyone would naturally want to know how to, be, how to avoid that terror. They didn't know when the end would be, any more than we know when the end would be. We believe we are a lot closer than they are because of the signs and the wonders that we see today, because of the, the warning signs that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, when you see more prevalent earthquakes and pestilence and wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nations and all of that. But the conclusion is, verse 21, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is salvation for any and all who turn to the Savior. You ever been in a hurry and someone just wants to talk, but you're really in a hurry? This week I had a set appointment. And the guy called me early and he goes, Lance, I have this window. And this window was between like 9.30 and 9.35. I need to meet you here. No problem. But Lance decided to go to Home Depot. Every time I go to Home Depot, I run into half of our church. <laughs> We're going to start having Bible studies at 6.30 at Home Depot in La Habra. But this time I left. Walked out of the store and I'm like, I made it. Loading up my truck, and all of a sudden, hey, hey. I turned around, and this is what this guy said. He goes, you were nice to that lady at the register. I'm like, oh, that's Norma. She's really cool. And I've been praying for her, praying with her, and just yeah, part of you know, the conversation. I'm going to he goes, why? Oh, no. <laughs> and the guy just, he, he, he even goes, I can tell you're in a little bit of a hurry. Why? How can you tell? And as soon as this guy, I don't know all of what he is saying. He was saying a lot. I just started praying. Lord, please. If this guy needs to know you, uh, okay. And it was amazing. Because all I had to say was about two things. I just listened to him. He's just bearing his soul, bearing his heart. This happens a lot. It, it, it happens a lot to me. Home Depot is like a good place to see people converted. <laughs> and all I did is I thought about this. All you want to do is plant seeds. I don't save anybody. You just want to plant seeds. And sometimes the seeds are being planted as the gospel is being lived out. Right? Yeah, you let some person have the... Yeah, no, you go first in line. No one's doing that in Home Depot. No one's smiling in Home Depot. Well, you can't mask on anyway, you can't tell. But yeah, you can, their eyes. They're not smiling. But you can be that one person. It sets up the opportunity for the needy person to see something different and to start the questions. Did I lead the guy in a sinner's prayer and have me come down and sing, come just as you are? No, we didn't do that. It would have been great. Hold on, I got this Crystal Lewis song on my phone. Let me just play this song. Come just as No, we didn't do that. We just did some planting seeds. Just shared the love of Jesus. He knew and I knew. Jesus is real. There's a need for him. Okay. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. How many of those people are we going to run into this week? Salvation for all that will turn to the Savior. God has given every one of us a measure of faith. 
He's given us the capacity to believe. He has given us the capacity to choose free will. God has given us the capacity to examine our own lives and make a determination if we are wrong, we're sinners, or we're not. God has given us the capacity to be impacted. Every one of us have the capacity to be impacted by his word. After Peter explains, again, who Jesus is, and died on the cross and raised from the dead, again, they will be cut to the heart by the word of God. He's given us the capacity to acknowledge our need. Once they were cut to the heart, they're going to say, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They recognize their need. We all, everyone you share our faith, your faith with, has the capacity to recognize their need. God has given us the capacity to repent. Peter would even say to them, repent. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has given us the capacity to repent. God has given every one of us the capacity to be saved. 40 and 41, we'll get there. It says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. What a great thing to say, by the way, to people today. Be saved from this perverse generation. They're going to be, amen. (laughs) And then those who gladly We have the capacity to gladly receive what we previously wholeheartedly and hard-heartedly rejected. When you bring the supernatural into a natural conversation, the supernatural will do what the supernatural said he will do. Indeed, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter explained next how it happened, not just what happened, but how it happened. 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. Oh, man. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He goes right to the founder of the church, Jesus. The one that they had recently, 50 days earlier, crucified. Their religious movement had. No doubt, again, they had bought into the lies about Jesus. But what they needed to hear was the truth about Jesus. That's it. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't minimize it. As he he began to talk to them and their plight, like they're wrong, he didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't minimize it. There are so many churches that have become massive churches these days because they've fallen into what Paul said people would be looking for in the latter days. They would have itching ears. Like, there will be a mass amount of people, this marks, by the way, the society living in the latter days, there will be a lot of people that are going to be going, tell me what I want to hear, not what I need to hear. Don't offend me. And thus, a few years later, we are in a society that is the most easily offended society that will ever walk on the face of the planet. But as you look at this, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I believe out of now love for the lost, he's telling them what they need to hear about themselves and what they need to hear as it relates to truth about Jesus. Didn't water it down, didn't candy coat it, didn't just, here it is. And I'm so proud that the first preacher wasn't afraid to preach. I'm sure 
you know, Peter probably would, would not want these accolades 2,000 years later. But Peter, I am so proud of you. I know he's not listening to me. I'm not going to do that weird thing. Yeah, you're listening to us right now. No. We pray to Jesus. He listens to us. But if I were to compliment Peter today as a preacher myself, I'd say, dude, I'm so grateful you just were not afraid to preach Jesus. I am so proud of you, Peter, that you just never stopped preaching Jesus. I'm so proud of you that you didn't back off. I know it puts you on a cross upside down and everything. It was, that part was pretty brutal. But I'm so glad you didn't wimp out and you showed up and you weren't afraid to speak up. I'm so proud that you weren't afraid to tell people their plight and what they did wrong and how to get right. I'm so proud of this man that was a fisherman that always stuck his foot in his mouth. But after he had seen Jesus, I, I don't know, that embrace, he, he, he couldn't but talk about him. So he talks about Jesus. A man attested by God. That means exhibited in the Greek. Revealed as God in human flesh. This was evidenced that he was God in human flesh by the miracles and the wonders and the signs in which he did. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is to present the deity of Jesus. How do you present the deity of Jesus? Did John just say, he's God, he's God, he's God? No, he showed Jesus doing things that God alone could do. And that at the end of that gospel, he's like, there's many other things I could have written, but I wrote these things that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might find bios, or I mean zoe, spiritual life in his name. So look at all the miracles and the wonders and signs. Think about this, he says to the crowd. He's getting them to consider Jesus. The truth about Jesus. He did all this right in front of us. You know this. These were convincing proofs. You can't claim ignorance. In Luke chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus, he raises the widow's son. And the people say, a great prophet has truly risen up among us. And God has visited his people. Guys, you know that. He did things that only God can do. So you know this evidence was, was open, it was undeniable, it's still fresh in your minds, it's still the talk of the town. Everyone knew this. That's why the religious leadership, your leadership, came and had him put to death. He was a threat to their establishment. It's clear that he was God. Many of you and your friends had heard him speak, watched his life, maybe seen him raise someone from the dead or knew the family members of the one he had raised from the dead. These things were not done in a corner, wide, open, public. And then Peter knew that they would wonder if Jesus, you know, if he had all of this power of God, then why the cross? That's why he says in verse 23, as the Son of God, he was submitted to the plan of the Father. He being determined or being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God. This was part of the Father's plan in giving His Son as a Savior to the world. God the Father had planned it, ordained it. Every detail from the virgin birth forward to His, his death, burial, and resurrection. Even man's involvement was all part of this. Even all the way down, he could say, even Judas, what Judas did, that was foretold in Scripture. God in his omniscience had planned all of this in advance and, and worked all of this into his eternal plan. And unless they would feel that they were absolved from any kind of guilt or had to take any kind of responsibility in being wrong about Jesus, Peter says, you guys, <laughs> verse 23, you, you nailed them to the cross, you put Jesus to death. Basically, he's like, guys, even though this was all part of the Father's plan, and even though Rome actually carried out that crucifixion, the people here in the region were the instigators behind all of this. God knew it. But you also need to know God raised him up from the dead. Yeah, you guys, you were all 
party to and, and part of the crucifixion. But, but, but he raised him up from the dead. The sentence of Rome in the Roman court was reversed by a higher court, you see. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it could not be possible that he should be held by it. So the resurrection he brings in. Proof of the deity. The early church knew this. The resurrection would become a central theme for the early church. By the time the letters would start to circulate, the New Testament letters in 1 Corinthians, that first letter in chapter 15, Paul would hinge everything that they are on the resurrection, our being forgiven of our sins, our, our preaching, uh, our loved ones being in heaven and not just being some disembodied spirits floating around. All of that was hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then to further confirm the resurrection as part of God's plan, he quotes a prophetic passage in Psalm 16, where David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. I'm going to ask you all to stand because I will just keep going for the next 25 minutes if you don't. I've got my zero. We're going to start here next week. <laughs> I only got halfway through his message. But I'm going to just leave you with this question and maybe whet your appetite. Why did Peter... Case in point, after the prophecy in Joel, this, this prophecy that David gave. Why did he say this to these Jews? I'll give you the answer, and then we're going to really break it down next week. How's that? He, he said it to them because he knew that many of them would have pondered that, that passage many times. David, just talking about this I'm not going to die, but I'm not going to stay dead. As, 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 as Peter's talking to these people, not far from them would have been the tomb of David with the bones of David. And so he gets these Jews that he knows. It's like he knows them. He's one of them. And again, we're just pulling from the sermon things that can help us. Know your audience. Know how lost they are. Don't be afraid to talk about why they're lost. And then look for something that you might be able to tie to the word of God. And for these Jews, they needed to just understand what the word of God had to say about the Messiah. They had missed all of this. They'd marginalized all of this. Just, we don't understand that part. He's like, well, hold on. If David said that, we must at least attribute it to something. We've got to connect it to something. And he was speaking in a, in a prophetic sense about the Messiah, and they knew that. Maybe they just hadn't given enough thought about the scriptures that talked about the resurrection of the Messiah. I would say that the average person we share our faith with today hasn't given much thought about the scriptures that talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And as he began to connect those dots, I'm sure some of these are looking around going, never saw it in that light. Never thought about it that way. But the word of God empowers 
Now, the, the word of God empowered by the spirit of God is touching their hearts. And they're beginning to open up and soften up. And they, 3,000 of them, will be saved. And I know most of us would be like, but you don't understand what it is. I, 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 I don't like sharing my faith. Just if we were honest, I'm afraid of sharing my faith. Maybe you feel inadequate. I, I just, you don't, you, don't, you don't know who I've been. You don't know what I've done. We are still in that era of grace. What'd you do 50 days ago that God just looks past right now and is like, eh, watch what I'll do with you tomorrow. What if you just went up to Peter afterwards? You didn't know the guy. You, did, you just didn't know his story. And there's all those 3,000 people and you're like, Bro, who are you? What would he have said? What? Man. Six weeks ago, let me tell you about my life. Six weeks ago, I wanted nothing to do with this guy. You're kidding me. Six weeks, six weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember Passover? When they were crucifying him, I've, I just followed at a distance. Three times. I don't even think if Peter were to have that conversation, he would get it out of how he denied him. Then he found me. How many of you are glad that just the hound of heaven keeps finding you? <laughs> we always like, I'm running to him, I'm running to him. We even sing the songs. I'm running to you right now. There's times we're running from him. He chases us down. He looks past whatever we use as excuses. The enemy uses to just defeat us. And hold us back. And he longs for a new embrace, a fresh embrace. He longs to work in us so that he can work through us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word again. And 2,000 years later, how it still cuts our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you work and give us our Pentecost over and over and over again as we seek you and obey you and ask you to fill us, you do, as we meet and gather and work through whatever we have to work through to get here. You meet us here. You teach us here. You convict us. You redirect us. You encourage us. You love on us. You save among us. Before we close this out, if you're here online, wherever, in an overflow area, and you've never given your life to Jesus, I would just encourage you right now, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he'll save you. If you feel this morning just convicted, cut to the heart, and you've been wrong about Jesus. And you're like, I, I need to make it right. Would you tell him that right now? Just say, man, I, I am I'm a sinner. And I know my sin separates me from you, so I ask you to forgive me. Just tell Jesus that. Ask him to come into your life. Ask him to save you. Ask him to fill you with his spirit, with his love. Love for him. Love for his word. Love for the lost, love for the church, love for his return. Thank you, Lord, for your continued work advancing in this era of grace, your son, in our hearts, in our lives, and in this world. Our world needs Jesus. 
We just need you, Jesus. And may we be faithful, 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 to do our part in sharing you with a world that so needs you. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you.